Episode 777 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hi, Ben. So we're going to discuss the David Price signing. Anything you'd like to banter about before we do? Nope, nothing to banter about. Okay. Can I just say a word in appreciation of Tony Cruz? I'm not sure. sure if it's appreciation for him oh, or yeah. sympathy for him. I, I Well, I mean, I, it depends whether you think that this is part of, like, whether he's made a lifestyle decision. Right. If it is, I mean, if, if it is, then he's the chillest dude in the world. Like, he's right. basically like the, uh, I don't know, like uh, uh, Chris Pratt, you know? He's like the Chris Pratt of baseball players. He's just super duper chill, just wants to live in his, you know, van and, and have fun and doesn't need to do the hustle that all these other strivers do right yeah except chris pratt is now a big star and tony yeah. cruz is still tony cruz but yeah, yeah so so tony cruz the, the story of tony cruz who's sort of fascinated me for a few years is that he's been yadier molina's backup catcher in st louis for four years five years now and yadier molina's backup catcher is you know one of the the lowest stress jobs in baseball or just the the lowest playing time jobs in baseball it's just it's been one of the best ways to stay on a big league roster all year long without playing yep. <laughs> and so you could look at that as a bad thing that tony cruz has come up he's had the misfortune to come up with the cardinals when the cardinals had a great durable catcher and he hasn't gotten a bigger role or you could look at it as this is the only role that tony cruz could possibly have had and so he's lucked out in a sense because if the Cardinals had had a worse catcher and they had needed a better backup catcher, then he wouldn't have had a job. And that's sort of what has happened now. Maybe yeah. Molina has slipped a little. He was hurt last year. Maybe the Cardinals have decided that Tony Cruz is no longer good enough. And so they've signed Brian Pena, who's, you know, he hits like a backup catcher, I guess, or he hits better than a backup catcher maybe, and then traded Cruz to the Royals, where now he is <laughs> Salvador Perez's backup catcher, which is the newest way to be on a big league roster all year without actually playing, because <laughs> obviously Perez is, you know, now the, the guy who never takes a day off, less so in 2015 than 2014, but still a guy who never wants not to be playing. So if you look at the numbers over the past few years, like if you look at catchers, minimum 400 plate appearances over the past four years or past three years. Tony Cruz is tied with Jose Molina for worst hitter, second worst hitter that is in baseball. Jeff Mathis is the worst. So you have Mathis, Molina, who's now retired, and Tony Cruz. And Mathis and Molina had reputations, probably deserved reputations as defensive geniuses, whereas there's no sign that that's the case for Tony Cruz. He doesn't do particularly well he's below average in all of the bp catcher stats framing blocking throwing 
not by a ton, but, you know, he's not a defensive wizard or anything. So he has sort of carved out this niche where he's good enough to be a backup catcher for one of the most durable catchers in baseball. And then as soon as the team actually wants a backup catcher who might actually play, he is no longer good enough. (laughs) So... I don't know how long he can keep up this act. I don't know if he is even happy. Maybe he's just thinking, oh, no, I finally got out from behind Molina, and now I'm behind Perez. But Well, uh, yeah, kind of, yeah, kind of like it, more like, oh, I finally waited out Molina. Yeah. He's, now I'm, now I'm going to get my chance to star, and uh, his boss was like, that is not why we brought you in here. Right. I, I mean, it, it's it's fun one of two ways. It's fun if you think that, Cruz is very self-aware, and like I said, just like in like one time I had a writing assignment, and uh, it got cut, it got killed at the last minute because uh, the the subject got injured, and at the very 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 last second, the piece was no longer timely, and so they just got killed. And I remember being very uh, sort of in, enjoying that because it was like I got I got the kill fee, which was half of the pay. And nobody would ever judge the piece. Like nobody, like if I had made a mistake, like I'm always terrified that there's some horrible mistake or that it's the worst piece I've ever written and I just don't see it. And that as soon as it hits the public, my career will be ended. And so the idea that I can do, uh, get half the pay for work that uh, with none of the scrutiny was actually kind of, I liked that. Like I, ever since I kind of wished that I could half the pay and none of my stuff would ever be seen by anybody like that would be the ideal world to me someone pays me half as i get paid but it just goes straight into the desk drawer and tony cruz maybe that is tony cruz's career maybe he like enjoys being around a baseball club but would rather not be on the field in front of everybody where he could strike out so if he's self-aware that's fun the other way that it's fun is if you think that uh in fact the baseball market is so efficient that the uh, that these that basically the thirtieth best backup catcher does continually get funneled into the thirtieth <laughs> least important backup catcher job. Yeah, that, like that. Like baseball teams have just completely cracked this, right. and that like they're so efficient that he is he is exactly perfectly optimally used. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not as fun for him. No, that then that begins a little sad for him. Yeah. In fact, it's probably neither of those things. No, and he's not a like this isn't like a free Tony Cruz campaign. Like oh. Tony Cruz probably shouldn't be playing, maybe at all. But he's managed to make this work, and I admire him for it. I think. All right. So moving on from one of the most obscure players in baseball to one of the most famous players in baseball. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, Over you have under more? on Tony. I just want to know, over-under on Tony Cruz uh, starts this year? <laughs> 15? 15. So that, are you, uh, okay. So that would mean Sal starts 147, or is there another backup catcher in the mix? Yeah, I would, there's always like, there's always some guy who shows up somehow <laughs> and plays a few games. So he started, Sal started 142 last season. And uh, 150 the year before. So that's his range. I'm going to see how many Butera and Kratz got last year. Uh, Butera started. Yeah, he had 143 starts in 2014, 137 starts last season. At catcher, yeah. Butera started 23. And then you're right, Eric Kratz snuck in one and Francisco Pena snuck in one. Yeah. 
so, oh, that was that the uh, Hangover game where Drew Butero was like the cleanup hitter? Oh, maybe. Uh, or like the DH or something like that. Might have been. So yeah, I think 15 seems. I I would guess that having having won the World Series and having now been there twice, I sort of get the feeling that there's an awareness that okay, we can push Sal a little less now. That mm-hmm. like everybody has seen how how sad he looks in October. <laughs> like <laughs> it is really one of the saddest things in in non-concussion sports. Yeah. Watching watching Sal Perez just get turned into. Uh, into bruises yeah uh and uh and you know he he like now that they are now they are now a team that i imagine expects to be playing in the world series Mm -hmm. and so we'll uh we'll treat the season to some degree uh with that in mind and i would bet that sal Perez starts 131 games this year okay so you're probably taking the over on tony cruz's 15 yeah and i mean you know like you're right that someone else will We'll come in there. Let's see. The game that whoever that guy's name is that I said started, yes, uh, that was Drew Butera, first base. Okay. All right. Well, apologies to everyone who downloaded the David Price podcast and got eight minutes on Tony Cruz. <laughs> Hollow Orlando, cleanup hitter. Uh-huh. Okay. So David Price signed a seven-year, $217 million contract with the Boston Red Sox. It is... Technically, the most expensive pitcher contract in the history of baseball. Maybe we'll talk about whether saying that sort of inflates what it actually is. But this is maybe a predictable deal, I would say, in that we talked about when David Dombrowski traded for Craig Kimbrell. We talked about what that meant for whether they were going to sign a starter. It seemed likely that they were going to sign a starter after not having done that last offseason and then having things go south and having the rotation be terrible and Dombrowski being a guy who gives money to good players and trades for good players, such as David Price, who he traded for before and traded away before. So this is, in a sense, the most predictable possible deal that you could have imagined and it is maybe a fairly simple structure there's no deferred money there are no options there is an opt-out after three years so there is a possibility that this becomes a three-year 90 million dollar deal and then david price goes somewhere else we don't have to rehash our our opt-outs good for the player or good for the team discussion in full but do you want to yes it is a joy to have okay at least summarize because we've talked about this so for people who haven't listened to us for hundreds of episodes no it's important i think that we talk about it every time because every time it gets a little more intuitive to me and i get a little better at communicating it and so i think i have to it's like my it's my scales i have to work on this every chance i get so all right right, so the the point of the opt-out is that without the opt-out uh, with or without the opt-out, the club is going to have to commit to those seven years. That is just how it works. You are going to have the downside of David Price being awful uh, by next year, no matter what. Now, the upside of not having the opt-out for the team in this construction is actually fairly small. That Yes, it's nice that you have the choice. The club would definitely rather have the choice about whether to keep the guy or not. But there's very little upside in the final four years of a massive contract given to a A-plus free, uh, free agent in his 30s. So 
they lose a little upside, but not really that much. So the downside part of the equation doesn't change. The upside part of the equation was minimal to begin with and therefore doesn't change that much. And therefore, it is not that it helps the club. And then I'm going to put a little uh, footnote there to discuss whether it actually helps the club. It is not that it helps the club so much as that it very, very little hurts the club. And therefore, if you're negotiating with a player and this is something he asks for and and you can give it to him and maybe get some other concession in return, it's a pretty good thing to, to, to give away. The club loses very little and might gain something from this uh, negotiation. Okay. Now, footnote, does it actually help the club? There are some people who believe it does help the club because the player is likely going to give you most of his value at the front and by opting out saves you from the messy, ugly side. That presumes one of two things. One is that players are completely irrational about their own value and will opt out to test free agency even though they uh, are no longer uh, underpaid by you, right? That the mm -hmm. club is somehow overpaying, but the player thinks the club is underpaying. That seems plausible to me that that uh, inconsistency would happen, but it also seems that if the players were systematically uh, overvaluing themselves, that maybe some of the other 29 clubs or the industry consensus would also be overvaluing that player and therefore the player would have some trade value. And if you really wanted to get rid of him, you ought to be able to move him at that point in trade anyway. Footnote. Uh, so second turning footnote. into a David Foster Wallace. That footnote, footnote to that footnote, unless he has a no trade clause. All uh -huh. right. Uh, the second possibility for why that might be true is if the player's incentives and the club's incentives at that point in the deal uh, vary, uh, di uh, uh, diverge, where the player is now older and really wants to get the long-term deal again. And so uh, realizes that this is his last chance to get a seven-year deal anew or a six-year deal anew, and the club... Uh, while they would like to have him in that four-year deal, would not want to go the seven-year deal, and so it gives them an escape. I don't find that to be all that compelling, and I think that, uh, uh, well, and I don't want to go that much deeper into it, uh, but it's uh, in individual cases, there's probably some truth to that. Mm -hmm. And I just, I mean, just a general observation, I was looking at players who were going to make the most money in baseball in 2016, and it's a really pitcher-heavy top of the list, which sort of, and is probably about to be more pitcher heavy, like four of the top five earners in baseball in this coming season, and almost certainly five of the top six, once Zach Greinke signs, are pitchers. It's Kershaw, Price, Miguel Cabrera, Justin Verlander, Felix Hernandez, Greinke will be in there any day now, and... That's not even counting Max Scherzer, who's got a crazy amount of deferred money and is going to be making 40-something million in a few years. So does that surprise you at all? I mean, if you, if you didn't know contracts, would you assume that the best-paid pitchers would be making more than the best-paid position players? Because I would assume the opposite, in that it seems like, it seems like the, I mean, the top end you know, if you have a Pedro or Randy Johnson or something, a, a top-end pitcher can be as valuable as a top-end position player. But if you look at last year, if you go by baseball prospectus, wins above replacement player, there were four hitters worth over eight wins and no pitchers worth over eight wins. And that's looking at it retrospectively, whereas if you're projecting for the future, you would project starting pitchers lower than position players just because of the injury risk. So it seems 
curious that things would have shaken out this way where pitchers make the most money per season. Yeah, I think especially the the longer, well, the the fewer innings pitchers pitch, right, uh, yeah. the historical balance gets uh, disrupted further and further. And mm-hmm. yeah, they, I think that no matter what metric, no matter what version of war you're looking at, you'll see that in recent years, the really top end players are almost always position players. Now, it could be that clubs uh, dispute that premise mm-hmm. and think that a pitcher who's worth six wins might actually be worth as much as a, as a position player who's worth seven wins and that there's something about playing time or replacement level or uh, 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 what is that thing called? Uh, scaffolding. Scaffolding? Is that the word? No. What is that thing where if you put a pitcher in, uh, you're he's not, repla- he's not replacing oh, chaining. your second. Chaining. Yeah, there you go. I, I, I'm perfectly fine with my mistake being public, Ben. You don't need to edit that mistake out. <laughs> okay. So if you replace a uh, your second baseman, you're replacing your second best second baseman. But if you replace a pitcher, you're replacing your worst pitcher. Uh-huh. Out of you know, out of a hole, out of a staff. So anyway, uh, so they might see more value there. Like I guess what I'm saying is that it might be that uh, it's easier to if you add an eight win player you might only be adding seven wins in reality to your team's current construction, but you're probably actually adding eight wins if you add an eight-win pitcher. All right, but the uh, the other question that might be relevant is whether, well, all right, so in one sense, say you're a shortstop, well, all 30 teams need a shortstop. There just aren't that many shortstops, and you might be able to find, you know, two teams who have like almost no other option at shortstop and get them into a bidding war. That's one way that you might uh, create a market for yourself. But f- for pitchers, uh, there are 150 starting pitching spots, right. and so would you rather be a a scarce resource going into a very narrow market, or would you rather be, uh, you know, the best of a fairly common resource? But everybody needs it. Like, basically, would you rather be pomegranates or wheat? Right. I mean, every team has a fifth starter it doesn't want to have. Yeah, exactly. Every team has a fifth starter they don't want. They, in fact, and every team knows that there is no, essentially no limit to how many starter, how many good starters they need. We've seen teams that have tried having six, seven, and eight, and they still end up with Eric Stoltz at some point uh, that season, it seems like, uh, mm-hmm. inevitably. So I guess I will say that, oh, and then the third thing, by the way, the third thing is that because of the risky nature of pitchers, uh, the top tier pitchers tend to get six or seven years. The top tier hitters might get eight to 10. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the average annual value might be higher, but the uh, the clubs might consider themselves spending less on those guys. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I wonder if there's just still some element of thinking of pitchers and position players as two entirely separate groups and you have to have you have to get good ones of each type and maybe there isn't as much consciousness of the fact that relative to each other those groups are no longer the same as they were decades ago in that pitchers just don't pitch as many innings now and so they can't have as much of an impact as they once did so i wonder if that's some of it but i think you're right. Those are all good, legitimate explanations for why it might be the case. Anyway, yeah. David Price, big contract, big number. And yesterday when the deal was announced, you were G-chatting me a bunch of reactions to the deal and being surprised that people were surprised. So why were you surprised that people were surprised about this contract? Okay, well, first I'll say I'm not surprised people were surprised because people are always surprised 
by every big contract. We uh-huh. and me, uh, I think I am too. We're all shocked by the number. See, we're, it seems to me that we're always about three years behind the market in just adjusting ourselves to the amounts of money uh, that get spent. And so it's not surprising that people would see, you know, what is technically a record contract. Uh, and wow, that's outlandish. Can you believe how much money it is? But the reason that I uh, was surprised or the reason that I didn't think that this was a great example of a huge contract uh, or a surprising contract is that he basically got exactly what Max Scherzer got last year with $1 million more uh, per year added on, which is how these guys like to do it uh, when they can. I mean, that's essentially, you know, more or less that those guys are fairly comparable. The, the guys get grouped together at tiers and uh, David Price and Max Scherzer are both uh, at the top of the pitching options with the exception that Clayton Kershaw is the very, very top of pitching options. After Kershaw, there's not really much dividing Price and Scherzer and any of about six other guys. And so the fact that we saw this exact contract basically a year ago makes it weird to me that we would be surprised that it's coming up again. So I guess that's the main reason. Yeah. Uh, also because a Jim Bowden basically <laughs> got it exactly right. So uh-huh. what, I mean, we were like, if you, if I, I just feel like if like a lot of people were talking by, about, he missed by two million dollars. Yeah, he, we were. He guessed seven two fifteen. I guess I feel like a lot of people who about how huge and shocking and what a lot of money it was. I feel like yesterday before the deal was announced or, or signed, what do you think David Price is going to get? They would have said that. They would have said kind of like what he got. And so I I guess that's why. Right. I mean, yeah. if he'd gotten 10 years, like to shock me for a David Price contract, he would have to get 10 years. Like it, if he had gotten 10 years, I would have gone, wow, that's a lot of time mm-hmm. for a pitcher. Uh, but... I mean, it, honestly, like anything under $35 million for a top free agent wouldn't seem that outlandish to me. Yeah. Per no. year, per year. I mean, he's been, you know, the third best pitcher in baseball over the last few years or somewhere in that range. And he's durable. He doesn't have much of an injury history. He's not declining. He's not losing tons of stuff. He's left-handed. He's, he's well-liked. Yeah, sure. He's got a cute dog. He's <laughs> he, has, uh, he has everything you would want except... I suppose, postseason performance, but obviously this shows how the market values that, I would think, or at least how the Red Sox value it, which is not at all, it would seem. Maybe the the interesting aspect of it is that it's sort of a break from what the Red Sox have been over the last few years, and that's not even a surprising thing because the Red Sox are now run by a different person. So, and it's someone that we would expect to have done things differently. So maybe like if the Red Sox win the division this year or they win the World Series or, you know, they're they're good, then I think maybe the lesson that people would take from this is that they messed up by acting like a smaller market team over the last few years. That they won a World Series. They did. They did. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, <laughs> if they hadn't won that World Series things would look a lot worse. And if we accept that winning a World Series is somewhat random or it doesn't necessarily reflect how great a team you were that year or, you know, you you weren't necessarily built way better than every other team that made the playoffs that year and didn't happen to win the World Series, they haven't made the playoffs in most of the last several years, right? 2010, 2011, 2012, 2014, 2015, and they've been terrible the last couple of years which is you know when you are one of the 
wealthiest teams and the biggest spending teams than if you were completely terrible. That obviously reflects more poorly on you than if you're a, a team that doesn't spend. So you could say, you could draw the lesson that the Red Sox tried to be cheap or they tried to economize and they tried not to give seven-year deals to pitchers who were 30 years old and they signed Rick Porcello instead or they signed guys for four years and five years and they wanted to avoid these kind of commitments and look what it got them. It got them a bunch of mediocre or worse starters and no lights out closer and they were the worst team in the division. So you could draw that lesson. So if the if the Red Sox are good in the coming year and and they should be if you at least look at the projections they should be, which obviously was the case last year and turned out not to be true. But if the projections work this year and the Red Sox are good, then I would think people would look at that and say, well, they played in the top end of the market this time. They didn't skimp. They went for Kimbrel. They went for Price. And look how well it worked. So I don't know if that's fair at all. I don't I, I don't know if you can look at the last couple of years and say that it was that, that it was that they didn't get the ace. Because as we talked about two days ago, if they had signed an ace last offseason, like even if they'd signed Max Scherzer, if they'd done everything else they did and played the way they did, then they still would have missed the playoffs because they were bad in other ways. So that seems like too facile a lesson to draw from the last few years of the Red Sox, but maybe that will become the story if they're good this year. It's interesting because so much of the Red Sox uh, correction to previous Red Sox uh, tactics was uh, a lesson learned by their decision to sign a bunch of long-term contracts for elite free agents that, you know, turned out horribly, right? right. And a couple years ago, yeah, this Crawford, was... Crawford, Gonzalez. Yeah, right. thanks, Ben. Thanks for spoiling it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, a couple years ago, this was a totally reasonable... Like, I think that it was seen as, like, oh, obviously, yes. That was where Theo misstepped. He, uh, he forgot... Yeah. All the principles that we knew about how homegrown talent is better and free agents get overpaid and pitchers and five years and all that. Yeah. He and, said this himself. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. And, and and it's sort of interesting to look at it now where Adrian Gonzalez was clearly a good contract and is still producing four wins a year. John Lackey wasn't a good contract, but not because it was too long a deal. The, the years that were horrible were... You know, year uh, well, year one was okay. Year two was a disaster. Year three, he didn't pitch. So if you'd signed him to a three-year deal, you would have gotten nothing out of him. And then he was really awesome in years four, five, six, and six, of course, coming for free. And they ended up cashing him out for well, what seemed like value, although it turned out that uh, Joe Kelly has good stuff and Alan Craig is a mess. But uh, the that deal, the long-term nature of that deal, was not ultimately. A bad thing at all uh and carl crawford strangely was easily moved uh to a team that had a lot of money in this uh tv bubble world uh and i don't think beckett's a good comp because beckett was he signed an extension and it seemed like that was kind of a more classic i, I don't know that i would count bucket in a uh, bucket in that same mm -hmm. uh, group but maybe i'm forgetting some of the details of beckett. but anyway uh in retrospect uh, those weren't really problems for the Red Sox. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
I guess, I mean, it still does seem like you shouldn't sign long-term contracts to free agents because they always turn out horrible, it seems like. Uh, but the part of the Red Sox problem is that when they signed a bunch of short-term contracts, those guys were free agents a year later and they had to sign more guys. Uh, and it's hard to find nine one-year deals for good players every offseason, especially when other teams are trying to do the same thing. Uh, and there's something to be said for locking a guy in. Now, uh, that said, we say this about every pitching deal of this nature. Uh, all of the uh, actuarial tables will tell you that these deals don't turn out great. Uh, there's really no way around it. Uh, we are We want to be excited when they happen, and we also want to say, ah, but it's going to be horrible, and that's pretty boring. But uh, if here's how I'm sort of thinking about it from the Red Sox perspective. The Red Sox, of course, uh, want to, everybody wants to develop great prospects, right? Mm -hmm. And the Red Sox made a big commitment to being a player development farm. And uh, if you look at, um, you know, that's this is the, the dreams, to develop a bunch of great prospects who who turn into very valuable pieces for you. And Andy McCullough in his Royals essay last year in the BP Annual made the case that uh, prospects uh, are nothing. Prospects are just a bunch of uh, wishes and dreams and that that's why it makes sense to trade them and why the Royals did what they did, why they traded their prospects and got the players that they needed to make to the World Series and then to win the World Series. And by insisting that a team like the Royals hold on to their prospects because of the surplus value that they promise or whatever, you're ignoring the needs of the team and the, the benefits of the players they bring back and overrating the security of those prospects. And really, it seems to me that the big divide between small market and big market teams is right now is that small market teams have to use their prospects to trade and big market teams get to use their prospects, get to keep them and get these players go and sign David Price. They can just go sign David Price. And so like uh, guys like, I don't know, maybe not, but it seems like guys like um, Bogarts and Bradley and Betts and those sorts of things, uh, a well-run team, a well-run rich team gets to hold on to those guys, gets to keep them. We usually used to think of rich teams trading these prospects for uh, for veterans, but it seems like the, the, the great privilege that you have as a rich team now uh, is that you are one of the teams that can go out and sign David Price and not care too much about the money and get those sorts of players that you need to be the the ace or the last piece in your puzzle or whatever the case may be. And uh, so we're going to, I don't know, maybe it just seems like we're going to end up seeing uh, rich teams be the ones that get to develop their prospects and poor teams be the ones that have to trade their prospects. This is more or less how, don't you sort of agree that like the, the details of the deal maybe... Uh, Aside for the moment, this is more or less how a rich team should be behaving, developing good prospects, keeping them, and then using their financial muscle to go sign a guy like David Price. Yeah, who won't even cost them a draft pick. Who doesn't even cost them a draft pick. It seems like this is why you want to root for a team like the Red Sox. So like the Blue Jays also had David Price, right? The, sure. Both Blue Jays and the Red Sox got David Price, but the Blue Jays had to give up a lot of young talent to get him because they couldn't go out and sign him to a seven-year deal. The Blue Jays uh, don't really have the financial wherewithal necessarily to go sign the best free agent on the market to a long deal that will possibly cripple them. So they have to trade 
their young players to get their David Price. And I think you saw a little bit of that with the Angels where they were trading for, you know, when they traded for Zach Granke, they they traded a whole bunch of stuff to get Zach Granke. Uh, and that's maybe arguably the wrong way for a team to be. Like the Angels probably should have kept their prospects and then just gone and done the the big dumb free agent signing. Except for then on the other hand, the Angels did a bunch of those and they didn't turn out well either. It's hard to build a team, Ben. I don't really know the best way to build a team. Yeah, I don't know either. But whatever the Red Sox have been doing the last couple of years hasn't worked out. Whether it should have or not, it hasn't. And therefore, maybe it makes more sense for them to do something like this. I mean, for one thing, they seem like they should be good. They seem like they're in that range where it really benefits you to upgrade because it could very likely make the difference between making the playoffs and not making the playoffs. And maybe the revenues and the declining ratings and all the stuff that comes with being bad for a couple of years when you're expected to be good, maybe there's a bigger bounce back for them than there would be for most other teams that make this same deal because they haven't done this for a few years and people are tired of them not doing this. So maybe some people come flocking back. So it seems that Red Sox always end up being either extremely happy in Boston or extremely unhappy in Boston, that the, the place either turns you into a hero or breaks you. And I'm curious if you have any feeling about which David Price will be, because there he does come with a certain baggage, narrative baggage, about his inability to pitch in the postseason. And you wonder whether he's going to get there and immediately all the talk show, uh, talk radio call-in people are going to be talking about, ah, it doesn't matter what he's doing in May. It doesn't matter if he's 17 and, and 0 in, in July. He's He's got to do it in the postseason. He hasn't done anything yet. And create this you know big burden on him where he's never really accepted until he pitches well in October, which he might do or he might not do. You don't really know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you wonder whether because of that, because he's already probably going to have a lot of people who are skeptical of him in that market, uh, whether it could be the sort of thing where he's uh, it, things have to go perfect or else he's getting booed. Yeah, or there's there's a greater risk of that outcome than there is when you know, he could have gone somewhere else, you would think. And that actually relates to what we were talking about last week on the email show with how agents should approach free agency or how players should approach free agency and what they should value and whether they should really care about an extra... million or $20 million when they're making $200 million when there are other factors that could possibly make them happier. And we've seen, again, now Price is a case where the player takes the most money. And reportedly, he was the runner-up for Price, at least in terms of dollars, was the Cardinals. And the Cardinals offered the biggest contract they've ever offered, but it was at least $30 million less than the Red Sox's offer. And... You would think, I mean, the Cardinals, right, they're supposed to be the team that everyone loves playing for, and they get to St. Louis, and it's the best baseball town, and the fans are great. And you could say that, you know, at least there's less less likelihood that you're going to go there and turn into Carl Crawford or something who's just run out of town and hates the town, and everyone hates him. And Price is from Tennessee, and supposedly he was enamored of the idea of joining the Cardinals, but obviously he didn't value that $30 million more. It usually does come down to the biggest bidder. Mm -hmm. Are you surprised that he signed this early? Well, not really. I mean, because there's probably, there's probably not more. Yeah. I don't think there's, there was much more for him to get. Maybe it's surprising that the offer came this early, but 
not that he took this offer if it did come. You don't think you? So you would be confident. I guess he's probably got a pretty good idea about what all 30 teams are thinking about. But would it have shocked you if he'd gotten, uh, if he'd broken? I mean, we don't know what the the thing about it is we don't really know what this year's market is going to be like. Mm -hmm. And you can only get kind of clues early on. But it is true that sometimes the free agent market does spike they're not spike because it doesn't usually ever go back down but it doesn't necessarily go up in a straight steady line year in year out there there are years where things change and it seems like the price of players goes up two or three two or three leaps in one offseason and like the uh I, I feel like the jason worth i think the jason worth year was one of those years where the dollars that you would have expected a player to get in uh, by December were much different than you would have expected in October because it was mm-hmm. clear that something had changed. And so I don't know. I just don't know if he's gotten enough information or. Yeah. Well, maybe the Zimmerman him. deal alone is enough to show that there's not going to be a dramatically uh, new market for starting pitchers. That's a good point. Yeah. All right. That's a very good point. So right. will will Granky get more or less now? You mean will he get less than price or will he get? Less than we thought he was going to get, or will he? Will he get more than price? Will he now uh, um, hold out to be the highest paid pitcher? Will he get one dollar more? I think not. Just, All right, just too too old. Uh-huh. He might get might get more per year. I don't know. Should be in the same range, I would think. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've we've discussed the David Price deal. I don't know if there's anything else to add. Kind of find ourselves talking down the same channels when we talk about these deals every offseason and we try to come up with something new to say, but there's only so much you can say about really good players signing for lots of money with teams that spend lots of money. Mm -hmm. All right, so we'll do the email show probably tomorrow, presumably, unless there's another giant contract to talk about. So you can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Please support our sponsor, The Play Index, at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow.